language lovers, and welcome to episode 7 of Life in a Second Language with your host, me, Spring Day. On this show, I interview people from all over the world and all walks of life about their experience living, studying, working, and loving in a second language, often an adult language, so this podcast may not always be appropriate for young ears. If you are studying or speak a second language or more, hopefully you can relate to what we get into on the show, or if you're thinking about studying a foreign language for the first time, we can give you an idea of what you might be in for. If you like the show, please rate us on iTunes or wherever you listen to this podcast. Feel free to share it as well. No matter how you feel about it, please, please, please wear a mask when you're out and about in shops to help stop Corona-19 from touring the world more than the Rolling Stones. As far as my own foreign language study is concerned, and as I've said before in previous episodes, I'm planning to take the Japanese language proficiency level 1 test next year. I'm currently using an online course to study for it. I've bought their courses for level 2 and level 1 while the website was having a lockdown summer sale, and the price I paid for both courses combined was less than the price of one private lesson with the tutor. Booyah! I loves me a bargain. Each course consists of 10 lessons. The website recommends that you print out each lesson and that turns out to be around 27 unnumbered pages per lesson. Sorry trees! And each lesson also gives you around 100 seemingly random vocabulary words to memorize. This week's vocabulary includes words like suspect, evidence, catch, and bicycle parking lot. Now at first glance, these vocabulary words seem to have nothing in common, but having lived in Tokyo for years in the past, I know that there is always a lot of drama between cops and bicycle owners. So much so that it seems that all the time you save riding a bike to work gets spent explaining to the police that yes, this really is my bike, while the cops pull up registration files to confirm what you've already told them. That's why I always walked to work. It's much easier to prove to the police that these legs belong to me, even though my legs don't really look like they belong to each other. Anyway, I'm slugging away at my studies, and at 27 pages a week, that's a lot to cram in. I'm doing my best to get at least a half an hour of study in every day, but I don't always. If I can get five days out of seven, I think I'll be a happy camper. Now, the lessons themselves are sort of dry, but the real stars of this course are the people in the example sentences. They've got gambling problems, they always leave the window open when they leave the house, they drink too much, they're worried if they can get married after getting pregnant, and they are always on the verge of quitting their job. I want to meet the people that inspired these sentences and hang out with them, because they seem like they'd be a lot of fun to be with after giving them a much-needed hug. My Japanese study recommendation this week is a Google Chrome extension called Rikaikun. It's an extension that will show you the pronunciation and meaning of any kanji word that appears on websites that you highlight. It saved me lots of time reading online news and magazine articles. But, as with all web browser extensions, you should check to make sure the extensions are safe for you in terms of your privacy. If Rikaikun looks safe for you to use, I recommend it. Now it's time for the Random Japanese Idiom Corner! 
Today's episode is brought to you by Attention Deficit Disorder, or ADHD. Attention Deficit Disorder is a disorder where people, oh look, a shiny penny. I can't remember the last time I used a penny, let alone a shiny one. I wonder how many pennies it would take to fill the Empire State Building and why Google thinks that's such an important question to ask in a job interview. I wonder if I were made of pennies if I'd weigh less. I wonder if I were made of pennies if I'd had better skin, you know, being copper and all that. I wonder if I have enough pennies in the sofa to buy a pizza. Doesn't it cost more than a penny to make a penny? I thought that's why they were going to discontinue pennies. Oh look, a squirrel. Attention deficit disorder. Smartphones and tablets always included. Today's idiom is omedamoku, which means to be scolded severely and literally means to eat a big ol' eyeball. The example sentence given in the Japanese idioms textbook is because she didn't do her homework again, she was severely scolded by the teacher. Or, because she didn't do her homework, her teacher made her eat a big ol' eyeball. I love this idiom. Think about it. Would you rather be scolded harshly or made to eat an eyeball? It's a hard choice, right? They're both equally unappealing. In order for me to make the decision, I'd want to know just how big these eyeballs are. Are we talking the size of human eyeballs or Haley Dumphy's eyeballs from Modern Family? Because those are big enough to choke a python. I'd also like to know how the eyeball is cooked. Is it boiled like an egg or is it raw like sushi? Do I get to cut it up or do I have to swallow it whole? Something tells me that if I ask too many questions, I'll get scolded while being force-fed both of Haley Dumphy's bowling ball-sized eyeballs. And that was the Random Japanese Indian Corner. That's sweet, kids. You're very sweet. You're very sweet. Stop. I am really excited to introduce our guest today, a jack-of-all-trades, a longtime friend, actor, comedian, DJ, flight attendant, and a genuine Star Wars character in the graphic novels. You heard me right. He's Mish Saman, a commanding officer of the Saudi Arabian outpost in the Star Wars comic books. I'm not kidding. Google it. It's there. Mish is also the OG Hogwarts Express conductor at Harry Potter World Universal Studios Japan, and a clip of him on the James Corden show went viral and saw Saudi Arabia last year. We talk about why the clip went viral and about his experience being a polyglot. What happens to your brain when you speak English, Arabic, Italian, French, Chinese, and Indonesian? And all the linguistic hangovers that are bound to happen. I hope you enjoyed our talk as much as we did. And now it's time for our interview with Mish. <laughs> Welcome to another episode, and I'm so excited to introduce my friend, actor, DJ, an actual character in Star Wars, and a viral internet sensation from his appearance on the James Gordon show in Saudi Arabia. Please welcome to the show, Mish. Hello, everybody. And I'm glad you put the James Corden show because just being a viral sensation, that just sounded very, very, very wrong. But yeah. <laughs> Once that uh, aired in uh, the Middle East and in Saudi Arabia, it became viral. They really need to find a better word for that. That just sounds so, you know. Medical. Anyway, sorry. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it does sound medical. Yeah, especially these days. Uh, yes. I'll say it's a, it's a more positive viral um, yes. sensation. It um, was very positive. 
Yes. So uh, we'll start from the beginning. What is your native language and what languages do you speak? Oh, um, my native language, I guess, would be Arabic. And what languages do I speak? That is a really interesting one because at one point I have been able to speak Arabic, English, French, Italian, Mandarin, Cantonese, Japanese, and Indonesian. Wow. But from being unpracticing in a lot of them, I will just say Arabic, English, Japanese, and Indonesian. I went from eight to four, and I'm trying to learn Russian and Korean, but because of Corona, I don't hang out with Russian people or Korean people, so I don't have anybody to practice with. It's one of those things that I really, really love languages because I like to converse with people, as do you, you know? You know how it's like. You you just love to talk to people, especially of different cultures, because there's something educational about it. And you learn a lot about a culture through their, their language and their use of the language as well. I'm not trying to like boast or anything. It's just when you love something so much, you tend to learn it quicker and easier than anything else. How old were you when you started learning foreign languages? I think I was, whew, I would say nine. Okay. My father had sent me to boarding school in Switzerland where I had to learn Italian and French. Mm -hmm. And I had to speak those two languages. And I remember they refused to speak to me in English as much as possible because my parents were very, very adamant about me, especially my dad learning Italian because he speaks Italian. Mm -hmm. He went to school in Italy. So because he went to school in Italy and he went to college there, he spoke Italian and he wanted me to converse with uh, his best friends and the people that he knew when we would visit Europe. So, yep. Wow. And did they just throw you in the pool of French and Italian when you went to Switzerland? Yeah, pretty much. They literally dropped me off at the doors of this sporting school. I have a picture, a, a little picture of me all dressed up in like kind of like a school jacket, you know, with a crest and everything and a checkered or a plaid um, uh, trunk. You know, it's like it's just this big trunk that if you sit, if you stand it on its side, it was as tall as I was. And it was just like me. And it's, I think it was them driving away. <laughs> and it's just a picture of me in front of the school. So. So yeah, that's, they left me up and said, take him, let him learn. Beat him if you could. No, they didn't say that. <laughs> but Did you have a say in it? Like, was this your choice or? <laughs> no. I had absolutely no say in it. I was nine years old. My parents were like, you're going to learn it. You're going to go to boarding school. And I was just like, I don't want to go to boarding school. And they're like, you go to boarding school. But I will say this. I mean, <laughs> I joke about this, but it was a really good boarding school. I remember the headmistress of the school was, I believe her name was Heidi Rabani, and she was a gold medalist in uh, in the Olympics in the equestrian section of it, which is the horseback riding. And her husband was, Mr. Rabani was a chess grandmaster. And I will say that I learned a lot of things. I learned chess over there and I learned from a world grandmaster. And so it was really, really nice school. It was very, very, very educational at such a young age. And I say that in hindsight because at the time I probably, I wasn't very happy about it. But now that I'm older, I'm going, wow, that was an experience that I don't think I appreciated it 
until I got older where I was just like, oh, dang, that's kind of cool. I learned all these languages and I learned some other things in boarding school that um, I didn't think I would learn. I, at that time, I just wanted to play with my G.I. Joes and, uh, you know, watch cartoons all the time. I watched cartoons. They were just in a language I didn't understand. <laughs> And were there a lot of other kids like you that were kind of thrown in the deep end of language? Um, I think so. You know, believe it or not, I don't really remember. I think we were a total of five kids mm. over there. I remember one came later in that that summer and he was from Saudi Arabia and I went to school with him. I remember he and I became two peas in a pod because we were the only two people we knew and they did not like that so much. But he had already, he was half Saudi, half Swiss. So he already spoke German. Mm -hmm. So he already had the language. And I remember they kept trying to keep me away from him so we don't speak Arabic all the time, mm -hmm. you know? So I remember it was, it was very hard. But it was a really good experience. I remember I fell in love with uh, Swiss jam and cheese sandwiches all the time. That's what I had. <laughs> and that that stuck with me forever. And I don't know why, but it's the simplest thing ever that I ate. And I guess that's why I'm as large as I am today. <laughs> large and in charge. Oh, I wish I was in charge. Thank you. When you go to a school like that and you don't know the language at all, did you have to go to special classes to kind of catch um, yourself up? Is is nine years old like a, a magic age that you just... I think the younger you start learning another language, the better. You see, I grew up with two languages mm -hmm. um, initially, which is English and Arabic. And they're two very, very opposite languages. How so? And... Um, grammatically, uh, grammatically, they're very different. Grammatically, they are very different in terms that English is a very broad language. Mm -hmm. Arabic is a very specific language. Uh, grammar in English is specific, but it can be vague. Arabic is not like that. Arabic is much like a lot of the Romance languages, which are uh, very feminine, masculine based, you right. know, where you have to conjugate, you have to conjugate everything based on um, if it's feminine or masculine, if it's uh, singular, plural, etc. These things, it, you only see it in Romance languages. And being from an English background with the Arabic background, I think you're at a young age, your mind is developing the association patterns of two very different uh, languages. Uh, much like Japanese, uh, you are very proficient in Japanese and it's exactly like Japanese where it's like, you know, these two languages, the, the structure of the sentence is very, very different. Mm. And, you know, it, it's almost like you're speaking backwards, like Yoda, right. you know, and that's what makes it so hard because you want to say something a certain way, but you can't because in that language, you have to say it this way. And so when you're very young and you're learning two very different languages, I think that just wires your brain to make the associations to everything very easy. Mm -hmm. And this is, I think, one of the reasons why I love languages so much, because I think if I get down to being very technical about it and I'm no expert, but, you know, just from experience, you learn English, which is technically a Latin based language. And then you learn Arabic, which is an Aramaic language, you know, 
these two are very, very different, but then getting thrown in at a young age into trying to learn Italian and French, which is a Latin base that's a little towards the English side, mm -hmm. you know, you have the English, English thing, but then you have the Arabic way of conjugating and having to know what's a feminine, what's a masculine, what's singular, what's plural and everything. So your my brain was already wired to think that way. Mm -hmm. So it's it's one of the hardest things that I see people that only know English trying to learn another language. It's like, oh, the idea of figuring out is this a masculine, is this a feminine? Why do I have to do that? We don't have to do that in English and everything. That's the hardest part, I think, in languages for people who solely know a language like English. Right. It's like problems that people have when they only speak Tagalog or Indonesian, where they don't have feminine masculine conjugations of verbs. That's why you you most always are going to hear somebody who's from the Philippines or from Indonesia, from that part of the world, who don't have a language that do that. They call a girl he and they call a guy she, you know, because it's just it comes off their tongue and they just they don't focus on the conjugation of that. So they give the person the wrong sex. You mm -hmm. know, or the thing, the wrong sex and everything. So you, so you actually, you grew up in a bilingual home. Yes, I did. My dad was very adamant and my mom were very adamant of me speaking at least two languages from a younger age. Mm -hmm. You know, my father was 17 when he moved to, to, he was at a fairly young age. And it's, it's really interesting because I see that very, very often with people who learn a language at a younger age, they tend to not have an accent as thick as people with an older age. Right. You know, who learn a language, you, you kind of, it's harder to distinguish an accent with somebody who's learned the language younger than mm -hmm. they do older. I also find a very interesting correlation with people who are tone deaf. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's like antonations, they don't pick it up. So you got people that I, I feel I don't know if this is true or not. But then you got people like Arnold Schwarzenegger, who has spoken English almost all their lives, and they still have a very, 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 very thick accent. Because mm -hmm. I have a feeling that there might be a part of his brain, that part that's a little bit, they have trouble distinguishing tones. So they think that about is the same as about, you know, there's a about and about. That's very interesting. I've heard that there are fewer uh, Chinese speakers are tone deaf and there mm -hmm. are more pitch perfect singers in Chinese than singers. That, that, and you see, and there, there is a complete, what is it called? Oh, this is the part where my English doesn't come out so good, so good because I'm trying to think. I'm translating it to English, into Arabic, back into English. Um, it's been denied. <laughs> hypothesis, hypothesis canceled. No, um, that uh, I think that's very true, but I think the Chinese are probably. I hope there aren't any Chinese listeners right now. I'm not going to say this. <laughs> I think the Chinese are just going to do what the Chinese do, and they really don't care. So, well, it's going to be their that, world one day. It, it, it will. I mean, if you watch Firefly, everything's going to be English and Chinese. And they're actually teaching Chinese right now as a second language in Saudi Arabia. Really? They're, uh, they're, yeah, they're not forcing English to be the second language in Saudi Arabia anymore. But no, that was a joke about 
Chinese people. I have a lot of Chinese friends. I I just <laughs> I joke. I joke. I kid. I kid. <laughs> okay. So when growing up, did did you have a situation where you spoke Arabic to one parent and you spoke English to the other, or was it kind of mixed? <laughs> when I talk about my mom, I speak in Arabic, <laughs> and when I talk about my dad, I just wait until he's not in the house. <laughs> That's one way to do it. Now, I like what just happened is that you wanted to say something, but it felt right to say it in Arabic and you couldn't quite translate it into English. Does that happen uh-huh. a lot with all the languages that you know? Uh, yes. When I was learning Japanese and when I was getting into Japanese, I would say, and do the pause, the French pause. In Japanese, there's that Japanese pause of it you know but yeah. i did the french thing of uh, <laughs> and then for some bizarre reason a word in french comes out and i'm like why am i speaking french this is i mean say it in arabic say it in english possibly but why did the french come out and i think it's because of the muscle memory of the pauses how a person definitely pauses it sets them up for the accent and the the, the path, the muscle memory that the, the brain uses. Um, I really find languages really, really interesting. And I actually didn't know how much I love languages until I'm actually talking about it with you. So thank you for this. But it's, it's really interesting. I remember I was doing a play and I had to do an Irish accent. And I remember the director specifically telling me this. And it makes complete sense that before you step on stage, take one very Irish sentence, say that sentence before you come out because it'll set you up. It'll give you the muscle memory to remember that particular role of the tongue and everything. You know, people do Irish and then they slip into a Scottish accent or something, especially if a certain accent is not their native accent. And I remember I chose a sentence and I said it just before I got on stage and everything was good. Mm -hmm. I was in that mindset. So I think when you're speaking a language and then all of a sudden, like I say, you're speaking Japanese and you go, your brain flips from Japanese to French and then you're stuck. It's like that track switch on a train track where you go chink and you go oh dang it like a linguistic hangover (laughs) yeah that's a good word i like that i'm gonna use that one day linguistic hangover like i need a big mac (laughs) you've learned from nine years old uh you could already speak english and arabic natively and then french and italian and then japanese and indonesian yes as well as japanese yeah mandarin and cantonese you see i was in college and do not do this, but but it's a good way of doing it, but don't do this. I'm not perpetuating this. The best way to learn languages and the best incentive to learn languages, and this is the God-honest truth, impress women. Really? Oh, that's a good incentive. That's oh, a completely yeah. good incentive. I learned to write katakana and hiragana in three days. Spring break, 1993. I learned it in three days. And for those of you who don't know what hiragana and katakana are, they're the the two different alphabets of the Japanese language. Wow. uh, How far did that get you? I I married her. (laughs) (laughs) That was my first wife. I'm not married to her anymore, probably because I didn't learn to speak. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Okay, so you learned Japanese first of the Asian languages. And then when did Chinese come in? Yes. Um, You see, when I was at the university, I was an international student. So I was in 
engrossed in the international student program over there. So, and I became a international student peer coordinator and I was taking care of a lot of students when they come to America to go to the university and everything, you know, I'd always meet and greet them and stuff like that. Of course, being on the West coast of the United States, they were mainly all Asians and they were all from Japan, Hong Kong, Taiwan, and countries like that. So I had to deal with those countries and me just wanting to talk to them. I just sat down with them, had lunch with them, started hearing them. I, I picked up their languages and I just started talking to them and I wanted to learn Chinese and I realized that Cantonese and Mandarin were almost very similar. So if I learned Mandarin, then I could probably learn Cantonese. And then one of my classmates became a, a Hong Kong actor. And then I started watching Hong Kong movies and I just started watching Hong Kong movies all the time. And then I found out that children's shows were the best way to learn the basics of any language. So I started watching children's shows and I watched Disney movies in uh, all these other languages so I could learn the language. And it just picked up from there. So after learning Japanese, I learned Chinese a little bit of Chinese because of uh, my host sister and then after that Indonesian and I became very into that culture and stuff so how have these languages been used to your advantage knowing so many languages other than say like hello <laughs> <laughs> how has knowing all of these languages helped you in any way oh um okay this is a real this is a real story all of my stories are real but this is as real as it gets uh, i was doing my very first job uh, out of college and i worked for a japanese company i just happened to work for a japanese company <laughs> i <laughs> i uh walked into the bathroom one day and trust me this is a clean this is a clean story i walked into the bathroom one day and there was a japanese man in there and i accidentally bumped into him and i noticed he was japanese and it just came out i just said oh sumimasen which is oh excuse me and he looked at me and he's like oh you speak japanese and i said uh yeah and i tried to like kind of like show off i had no idea who this person was and i just said like yeah i speak japanese like a five-year-old and he started laughing and he asked me where i was uh, uh, working what department he didn't think that anybody any of the americans he obviously assumed i was american which i kind of technically i guess am but he he assumed that nobody spoke japanese in the company and everything and, and he was very impressed he asked me what department i was and he said goodbye to which my old boss came out of the stall next <laughs> He was in the stall the whole time. He's like, you speak Japanese? I said, yes, I do. He's like, I didn't know that. I said, it's on my resume. And he's like, oh, people lie on their resumes all the time, but you actually speak Japanese. I said, yes. And he's like, you're going to Japan. And he ended up sending me to Japan. And because I went to Japan, I managed to go and become a liaison between the American company and the Japanese company because of that. Because of bumping into a person and just speaking to him and just like the limited Japanese that I spoke. Into which later on in this story, when I actually went to Japan, the people in Japan kept looking at me funny and they finally told me, you did you learn Japanese from a woman? And I said, yes. They said, you need to learn Japanese from a man. You sound a little mm, feminine. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, okay, thank you. <laughs> So that's one way that, that the language has helped me. It has also helped me. I've 
been speaking English for so long that I became an announcer on TV in Saudi Arabia for a while. It helped me, obviously, in Japan with doing voiceovers and stuff like that. I am a jack of all trades, master of none, I like to say. And I honestly believe that any knowledge that you have on anything really is a, a commodity that you can never do without. In other words, if you have a language, you don't have to exploit it, but that doesn't mean that you should throw it aside on the wayside and not pay attention to it because it could help you out of situations. Uh, I became a flight attendant this last three and a half years, and you have no idea how useful it is to tell people in Chinese to stay seated and wear their seatbelts and keep their seatbelts on. You have no idea how great it is to be able in Japanese to tell a Japanese person, keep your bag underneath the seat in front of you. You have no idea how amazing it is to walk over and ask a person what they want to drink and they say it in their language and you know exactly what they say and you give it to them and they're like, how did, how the heck did he figure that out? You know, how did he know I wanted orange juice? It's fun. It's really fun. And it has definitely helped me a lot in terms of communication because it's always nice. I learned uh, as a flight attendant that when you have a language in your utility belt, use it. It's definitely helped me get accolades at the airlines because people write in all the time. He was great. He was amazing. He helped me so much. You know, I didn't imagine that I'd be going to like some boomtown somewhere, you know, where nobody's speaks any language besides English and I'm speaking Chinese to somebody, you know, and asking them, what, what do you want to drink? You know, they go like, oh, wow. And then you're their best friend and then you can't get any work done because they're talking to you <laughs> all the time. <laughs> Knowing so many languages, do, do you feel your personality changes in any of the languages you speak? Oh, yes. I, oh, that is such a good question because somebody brought that up to me the other day. Literally, not more than two weeks ago, I was doing, um, I was doing a live feed and somebody was asking me to speak in Japanese and then in Arabic and because people don't believe that I can speak these languages. So I was doing that. But then I noticed that my pitch changes all the time. When I'm speaking English, I tend to have a higher pitch mm. than when I'm speaking Japanese and when I'm speaking Arabic. When I'm speaking Arabic, for some reason, it goes really low. Mm. Okay. But then when I'm speaking English, I'm speaking like this and I'm not changing it on purpose. It's just like, it's like where, where it is. And it tends to really change my personality sometimes because when I'm speaking Arabic, I guess muscle memory goes yeah. right back to you're in Saudi right now. You're talking to somebody very important, most likely a family member, and you have to be very, very clean. You have to be very, very proper. You have to be very, very, you can't, you know, it, it does. I, I think that's a good question because it totally does. When I'm speaking in English, I tend to just ramble and just blah, 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 blah. Why? Because it's like, I, I, I can speak English. I want to get everything out of my head because <laughs> I, I, I want to. And when I'm speaking Japanese, it's more like I have to be very, very specific on how I say things because I could completely say that I'm eating dirt instead of saying I'm eating a donut, you know? Right. So I, I need to I need to definitely change it. I think ultimately your personality is the same, but mm -hmm. 
the way you speak is very, very different. If I wanted to do, like when I do an accent, if I have to do an Arabic accent, I definitely have to speak Arabic mm. first before I do it because there's the specific roles of the tongue and the elongations of vowels that you do. If you want to speak English in a Japanese accent, it's very, very easy to do. Just imagine in your mind, you're saying all the words with the letters. Mm -hmm. Don't think of the sentence, think of the letters, you know, and spell it out because then you get the speed and you get the accent. It's a, it's a very, every, every person has their way of uh, looking at languages. And I think when you figure out what works for you, it really works. I started learning Korean and I was just like amazed because it sounds like you're speaking Japanese backwards, you mm. know, and it just, the conjugation of the verbs and everything seemed the same. Like the grammatic structure is the same. But the actual words seem like it's Japanese going, it sounds like it's going backwards. When you sit down to study a language, are you, do you use a lot of paper? Are you more of a conversationalist? I am a total conversationalist. I have, okay, here is a very, very, very honest fact. I don't read very well. I have mild dyslexia when I read English languages. Anything with English alphabet, I have a very, very, very difficult time reading. Arabic, Japanese, very easy for me to read. I work really, really easily with symbols, but reading English is very difficult. So for me to learn a language from a book is extremely, extremely hard. It's like very, very difficult. So I am more like, a, like you said, I'm a conversationalist. When I start learning a language, I, I tend to, um, I tend to gauge how difficult a language is by learning basic five sentences or basic 10 sentences. And that makes me decide whether or not this is going to need extra hard work or it's going to be, oh, this is going to be a little bit easy. You know, mm -hmm. this is going to be fun. You know, it's like when you go from French to Italian, you can go like, yeah, this is going to be fun. You go from Italian to Spanish, you go, oh, this is going to be fun. You go from Spanish to Mexican, you go, oh, this is going to take some work. It's, it's the same language. I mean, don't get me wrong. I mean, Spanish is Spanish, but Mexican Spanish and Spanish Spanish, very, very different. So it's like stuff like that. You you figure out a couple of words and then you go you know, a couple of sentences and you're like, oh, I, I, I can pull this off. This is really, really easy. The easiest language that I learned in less than six months, probably. I mean, I'm not super, super, super fluent in it at six months, but I learned a fairly was Indonesian. It took me by surprise because the conjugations are very, very easy. It's like I want eat and then you put when. You want to eat yesterday, you want to eat now, you want to eat tomorrow. You, you don't conjugate the entire verb. You just say, I want eat now. I want eat later. I want eat tomorrow. But what made it easy was not just the conjugations of those uh, of those words, but it was the conjugations of the grammar. But it was the fact that almost 30 to 40% of the words were all Arabic. Really? Because Indonesia, yeah, Indonesia is, an, is a Muslim country. So most of their, their words are derived from the Quran and they, they, ha they have to speak some kind of Arabic. So, and I was just like, <gasps> because I was sitting down, I literally, this is how I figured it out. I was sitting down at lunch and I was hearing some Indonesian people speaking and I was just sitting there and I'm like, did you say your body's not clean? 
And they said, like, yeah, I want to take a shower. And I was just like, huh. They said, how do you know? I said, because three of those words are Arabic. Badan is body. And yeah. najis is, is dirty. And they're like, what? <laughs> you know? <laughs> they're like, oh, no. He can hear. He can understand. And I'm like, yes, I can. That's incredible. I do want to ask you, because you have that clip that went viral. Oh, and yeah. where you you had a clip that went viral in Saudi Arabia uh, where yeah. you were interviewed by James Corden, right? Mm-hmm. This was about a year ago. What part yeah. of that clip do you think made it go viral? <laughs> when I said my name, that is the honest to goodness fact. I get this all the time where thank you for bringing that up. Uh, that was definitely, you know, a highlight of uh, my year last year where Everybody was like, there's no way this guy is Saudi. This guy looks American. He speaks English like an American. And I remember doing that clip. And the moment he's like, what's your name? Where are you from? I said, my name is Mish and I'm from Saudi Arabia. He gave me this look like Mish. You know, James Corden's a very smart guy. He's been around the world and he's very worldly and everything. And he looked at me like Mish. Like he, he didn't have to say it. You could see it in his eyes. He's like, Seriously, you want to tell me that you're from Saudi Arabia with a name like Mish? What what the heck is Mish? Mish doesn't sound anything like it. And then I, I, I saw it in his face. I was like, it's my nickname. And he's like, oh, then what's your real name? I don't know why I did it. I, you know, it was just subconscious thing. And I was just like, Mish al-Khalid Hassan Abdul Hafiz Salman. There's more, but I stopped there. I decided to stop there. And it drove everybody. Everybody was like, what? And at that point, I think I get that a lot because I'm fairly fair skinned. Mm -hmm. And when I tell people I'm from Saudi Arabia, nobody believes me, Mm. you know, until I say my name. And the way I say my name is I say it's my name. I said it in a very, very, very traditional way, which is my name, my father, my grandfather, my great grandfather. And you can continue down the lineage. That's why I can. That's why in the Middle East, most of us in the Middle East, we can trace our lineage back at least a thousand, two thousand years. Wow. We can go. I can trace my lineage lineage to Abraham. So we can do that. When I did that, when I said I was from Saudi Arabia, it was almost like not cruise control, but it was it was one of those things where I saw it in his face where he didn't believe me. Mm-hmm. And I went straight to high school days. It's like, oh, gosh, I have to prove to this guy that I'm Saudi. Fine, I'm going to prove that I'm Saudi and not only Saudi, Saudi, Saudi. So he doesn't question me again. And it was kind of like autopilot. <laughs> okay, you don't you don't believe me. The, the, the joke's on you and you're going to have to go online or wherever you're going to go and trace it back. And you're going to find out that not only am I Saudi, I'm Saudi, Saudi from before Saudi was Saudi. <laughs> and it was just like, it was that, that kind of that pride thing of like, uh-uh, I'm American. You can trace me back to, uh, to the ship that came over here. And it's one of those things. It's like, I'm from Texas. You don't believe me? I live on this street and this street. And my grandpa was this one and this one, you know. it's almost like that. And that was the easiest way I could do it on TV, Mm -hmm. right? At that point, I wasn't even thinking. I I, I thought they were going to cut it all out. And they cut out, literally, they cut out about a good 10 minutes of that conversation. He and I were going back and forth. I don't know if I can even say this, but the biggest proof of that is when I replied to him, I'm like, I can neither confirm nor deny that either because I said it already three times. 
I said, I can't confirm or deny that. I can neither confirm nor deny that. And I said, I can neither confirm nor deny that either. And that's the part that they left on. But then Mm. you'd have to understand that there were two others before that. That's the part where when that aired, somebody saw it and they took the clip and they put it on. The person who put it on there is is an influencer over there with like 7 million followers and stuff. And he put that clip He's like, check this guy out. You never say Saudi. This guy really is Saudi, you know, because they know my family name. They know that we're from a certain part of Saudi Arabia and everything. He's like, this Saudi completely blew the audience away by, with his name. And everybody saw it and they're like, there's no way this guy is a Saudi. And they kept like, it just went viral. So that's what it was. It was the fact that I was speaking English. So this is ultimately what happened. I was speaking English so perfectly that they thought I was an American. But then when I introduced myself, they go like, wait a minute. Wow, this guy is Saudi. And it goes back to that whole pride thing of if I just said I was from Saudi Arabia and I was speaking like that, everybody would do the whole, oh, he's not really Saudi. Look how good he speaks English. There's no way that this guy can speak without an accent. And what's this? And this this guy's fake. There's no way this guy. But then when I said my family name, that's what solidified it. And to people in the Middle East, when they saw that, they were like, oh, wow. No, this guy is Saudi. He's not like a foreigner who came into Saudi Arabia and took the nationality. No, this guy is born, raised. This guy is, wow. This guy is really from Saudi Arabia. How do you learn English so well? And then I get into that. We want to speak English like you. It's like, well, then practice. Did you get a lot of people asking you how to speak English like you? Literally every live feed that I go on on Instagram, I go and I say, it's like, you can ask any question you want, except for three questions. Don't ask me what's my sign. Don't ask me what school to go to in the United States for for college. And three, don't ask me how to learn English. Stop asking me these three questions. And for all you ladies out there, stop asking me if I'm married. No, okay. So we're gonna come to our last two questions. All right. Okay. Uh, The first of which is what language do people speak in heaven? They speak whatever you hear them speak. I would think that they speak Klingon. No, just kidding. (laughs) So are you saying there's only three people in heaven? Is that what you're saying? (laughs) Uh, No, there are 13. Thank you very much. If the question is geared towards what do I think is the most beautiful language Mm -hmm. uh, I have ever heard, this is going to sound very, very, very weird, but... Uh, I think the most beautiful language that I think everybody should speak in heaven is Japanese. Yes, I really do. I don't know why there is. I have always had this thing that the Japanese language is just so soothing to me Mm. for some reason. Because especially when you hear the trains, (laughs) the lady talking on on the PA system in Japanese and it's just like oh this is so oh I can see why people are always asleep on the trains but (laughs) no no I'm just kidding I think Japanese is a very very beautiful language yeah I'd say Japanese English just can send you to hell really quickly because it's very vague and you can always take it the wrong way (laughs) you could say something very very innocent but your mind is in the gutter so you don't deserve to be in heaven, <laughs> you know. 
<laughs> well, that is yeah. my second question. What do people speak in hell? So is it is it English? <laughs> I think it's English. I mean, Lucifer's in English. You know, that show is amazing. And there's there's great reason for that. They gotta be speaking English in hell because it's like they're saying one thing, but they're really thinking something else. That's definitely, I mean, no questions asked. Hello. I mean, you think about it, you're in hell and every other sentence is that's what she said, you know. Is is <laughs> I mean, why would you say that unless you know you you're a bad person? I like that question too. Oh, Mies, thanks so much for doing this. You're amazing. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I I really enjoyed being on this, and uh, I enjoyed talking to you. You're really good at this, too. You're a very amazing uh, interviewer. You have a lot of patience if you listen to somebody like me for so long. People are like, oh, God, this guy speaks. That's what I'm talking about. English just makes me... If you if you did this if you did this interview in Arabic it would have been five minutes it would have been one word sentences it's like yes with the grace of God I think learning a language is very good that would be the translation from Arabic to English. Mm-hmm.